Would you join me in prayer at this time? Father, we acknowledge this morning your sovereignty as we just sang. You have no rivals. You are supreme over all. Thank you for the incredible privilege of approaching you in prayer. We know that you hear and that you answer our petitions. Lord, we continue to be heartbroken at the numbers of atrocities throughout our world, especially we think of those in Ukraine, and we just lift them up to you and pray, Lord, how long, how long will you wait to judge the wicked? But not only in Ukraine, but around our broken, fallen world, the pain, the suffering, the despair, it's all breathtaking. It does not threaten our confidence in your sovereignty, but it does fuel our pleas for your justice. Everywhere we look, we see defiance. We see rebellion toward you. And Father, if we're to be honest, if we've already prayed this morning looking in the mirror, we are reminded of our own rebelliousness. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Make us more like Christ. We pray that you would display your incomprehensible glory through us. Lord, I pray for each person gathered here today. It's thrilling to see and to hear their joy and love abounding. Today is somewhat unprecedented in church life. Two distinct gospel fellowships, church families coming together as one. Far too often we hear the bad news. We hear the ugliness. We hear about churches quarreling and splitting apart. What a great blessing. What a possible testimony to your glory you have provided for these two churches. The opportunity to become friends and allies in your work, to recognize our similarities and actively pursue unity. We ask for you to make your will and your wisdom known to all. Remind us today and every day of your unfailing sufficiency. Enable us to know your mind and desires for our church's future. You appear to be opening a door for us to merge into one. What an incredible, amazing thing for you to do. Show us how you are the master of life, maturity, and unity. Bless our time together. Today and throughout this month, as we gather together in your name, knit our souls together for your glory and your gospel. And we pray that you speak to us through your precious word. May we know the power of your spirit working in us and filling us for your honor and through Jesus' name. Amen. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith in Christ. And every day, 12 others are incarcerated, and another five are abducted, all because of their faith in Christ. This data comes from Open Doors, which is a non-denominational organization that studies these issues, that raises awareness, and seeks to minister to those who are persecuted. 
Open Doors regularly publishes a list of countries where Christians are most vulnerable to persecution. Their president, David Curry, says this, You might think the list is about oppression, but the list is really about resilience. The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean the church is dying and that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their hope and turning away from one another. But that's not what is happening. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The 50 nations on their list contain 309 million Christians living in places where the likelihood of persecution is very high, even extreme. That's up. That figure was from 2021, and it's up 49 million people over the previous year. Does that tell you what the trends are indicating? Most of us here in America, we're unaware of what Christians are facing worldwide because we live in a rather privileged area. We're not as familiar with the likelihood of physical persecution. Persecution and opposition to the gospel is not new. It's as old as humanity. Not only do we see it in the Bible occurring in conjunction with the birth of the church, but we go back and look and see how God's people have always been persecuted in this world of brokenness and sin. No one would suggest or argue that the United States is a place where it is difficult to live for Christ. But hostility toward Christians is rapidly increasing even in our country. I doubt most of us are excited about that prospect. But I want to plant in your minds today that maybe, just maybe, we should be a little bit more intrigued, if not enthused, at the prospect. What? You're saying we should be excited about the possibility of being persecuted for Christ? Well, yes. The church father, Tertullian, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And indeed, that has been demonstrated throughout the church's existence. Acts 4 reminds us that this is true. You know that all the apostles were ultimately martyred for their faith and for preaching the gospel unapologetically. We may not experience physical persecution, but we are persecuted in more subtle ways. Our struggle is against attacks like those described by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. We do not face bodily harm necessarily, nor are our lives in jeopardy per se. The threats we face come against our pride, our need for acceptance or for status in our country. Satan works in subtle ways to press Christians into lives that are mostly anemic and fruitless. Christians in Western civilization are enticed by Satan to adopt self-centered, complacent, indolent worldly fears, which is very effective 
very effective for hindering the church from fulfilling God's purpose. And that is that we display His glory for all to see. Acts 4 gives us a close look at what the early Christians faced immediately following Christ's ascension back into heaven. It's extraordinary to see how quickly persecution erupted against the church. It is valuable for us to examine it and to understand how they navigated through the opposition successfully, effectively. I have two primary points this morning. Most of our time will be spent on the second. The first sets the scene, tells us what's going on. The second one shows us what God's people at this particular time, the early church, how they responded and how we can learn from that, how we practically can apply these truths in our own lives as the stakes continue to rise around us. So first of all, let me suggest that we think about how faithful gospel proclamation always draws strong opposition. Faithful gospel proclamation or witness always draws strong opposition. Let's review what's going on here in the book of Acts. Chapter 1, we see Christ who has been walking on the earth, working in and out with his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection. 40 days, he continued to weave himself into their lives and encourage them. We don't have a lot of details about what that looked like, but we know he was preparing them, maybe connecting some of the dots, preparing them for what was to take place after his departure. Christ ascends back into heaven. 10 days after that, the Holy Spirit descends upon the believers and the church is born. The Spirit resting upon the people of God was such a novel and extraordinary thing that all those around them, the average people, began to recognize something strange was going on. They noticed. And when they did, they, they drew people to themselves, and the apostles used this opportunity to proclaim the gospel. To proclaim the gospel. And so we see Peter, along with the eleven, preaching the gospel with clarity and with power. The church was formed, and it was thriving. We come to chapter 3. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the Scripture says. They're still practicing some of the religious protocols that they were accustomed to, and going to the temple to pray was one of those that was very important to them. So they're making their way up to the temple to pray. On their way, they encountered a man, the Scripture says, that was lame from birth. He had to be carried every day to the beautiful gate, the Nicanor Gate, which gave access between the court of women to the court of the temple. It was a great location for begging. Why? Because there were lots of people passing to and fro. There were lots of people gathered around. So it was a prime begging location. If your livelihood rested on begging people for alms, this was where you wanted to be. And this man was literally there day in and day out. He was well known to the people of the community. As they made their way toward him, 
He asked Peter and John for a donation to his favorite charity, himself. I'm struck by this. The scripture says that Peter stopped and looked at him as if to appraise the situation and understand what was going on in this man's life and why. And then he said, look at us. Do we look like rich people to you? Do we look like the kind of people who are just reeking with gold and silver? We don't have any gold and silver. But I'll tell you what. What we do have, we'll give to you. And so he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. This man had fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But when Peter said this, it says that, Peter took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. He leaped up, stood, and began to walk. And he entered the temple with him. He'd never been in there unless someone had carried him, and I doubt that they did. He walked into the temple area with them, walking, leaping, praising God. The people all the people who knew who he was saw this and they were amazed. They were stunned at what they were seeing. This guy was so thrilled and thankful, as you can well understand. He was 40 years of age, the scripture tells us. 40 years he'd been, he had been helpless. For 40 years he'd been a beggar. And all of a sudden, he was made to walk. Not only able to walk, but to leap and praise God with other God-fearing people. He clung to them. And the scene drew a crowd, as you would expect. The word spread like wildfire. And the people were drawn in. Now, it might have been tempting for the disciples at that point to say, you know what? Give us some accolades here, right? But that's not how they're wired. That's not what's going on with them. Because the Scripture repeatedly reminds us through that they are filled and anointed with the Spirit of God. A crowd gathers. Peter has a reflex, a default mode. He starts preaching the gospel. I love that about Peter. Lots of things to maybe take issue with in Peter's life. That's not one of them. The, the crowd grew and Peter began to preach the gospel. He said, what you have just witnessed is God's power through the name of Jesus Christ. Linking them together very clearly. The one that was prophesied, the one who has been promised who would come and be a blessing to all nations. Then we come to Acts 4 that you just heard Tommy read. And as they were speaking to the people, now get the scene. We've just seen this incredible miracle take place. It is evidence of the power of God. This is divine power at work. A man lame since birth. No one else can pull this off. This is no sham. This would be something that the average person would celebrate. This should be something that the leaders of Jerusalem, God-fearing people, would celebrate, right? As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, what? Greatly annoyed. 
For heaven's sake, what are you greatly annoyed about? Well, Luke tells us, they were troubled, displeased, offended because they had heard them preach the gospel. Specifically, that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. And it is in his name that this man is now walking around before you. He is the one who has changed this man and made him whole again. And so they arrested them. Took them to jail. But one important little addition there. But many of those who had heard believed. The next day, they brought them in. They set them before the powers that be. These are the, this is the same crowd that, that uh, uh, instigated and carried out the pressure that brought about the crucifixion of Jesus himself. So they gather them together and interrogate them. By what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, by what authority? By what authority did you do this? Who gave you permission to do this? Can you imagine the audacity? Who gave you the authority to heal this man? Who gave you the authority to preach what you're preaching? Again, we're told Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This man is the stone that was rejected, what? By you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They were astonished. These men, these disciples had no rabbinical teaching. They had no training, no equipping. Who were they? And yet they looked at them and they said, we recognize Jesus in them. They saw the man healed. And they had no, they had no opposition to, to log. They had nothing to say. Fear gripped their hearts. They wanted them silenced, but they knew if they imposed their will upon them that the crowds were going to rise up because the crowds recognized an act by God. And they would be perceived as opposing God. So they deliberated. They conferred with one another. Don't you love that? How, how can we oppose God without being perceived as opposing God? The implication was clear. They told them, stop speaking about Jesus or in his name. The implication, we will do to you what we did to Jesus. Just not today. The gospel is provocative to rebellious people and a fallen world. Many people appear oblivious to the gospel. But Satan is never oblivious to the gospel. He watches, he waits, and he works subtly to oppose to instigate resistance to the gospel. Always. Always. Faithful gospel proclamation always draws strong opposition. But what I want you to think about this morning 
is the flip side of that. Faithful gospel people can navigate opposition effectively. Faithful gospel witnesses people can navigate this opposition, even persecution, effectively, powerfully. Kingdom advancing. And that's what we see. This text offers us a pattern that is very helpful. Seven responses here that inform our response to opposition, persecution. First of all, be submissive. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. I'm sorry, got ahead of myself. James writes, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. We're not encouraged to go out and pick a fight or drum up a battalion to charge Satan and engage him in a fight. The battle's already been won. Our job, he says, is to simply resist the things that he's doing, to trust in God, submit ourselves to him, and allow God to continue to flesh out his victory. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Peter and John did not resist arrest or interrogation. They submitted to the consequences of preaching the gospel. Now, this may be the hardest response of any of the seven we're going to talk about. Humility in the face of attack, in the face of opposition, in the face of those who oppose what we know to be right. It's difficult to walk humbly through adversity and persecution. Every impulse in us yearns to fight back. At Jesus' arrest, I remind you, what happened? At Jesus' arrest, this same Peter drew his sword and cut off the ear of a man to resist. Why? Because Peter didn't understand this role, this important role of responding in humility. Responding in humility that expresses a trust and a confidence in God. Here, he is arrested. And he is arrested without incident. Knowing what he knows about the situation and what happened to Jesus, he offers no resistance. How did he do it? He begins with confidence in God's sovereignty. With our eyes, we see tangible things. We see flesh and blood. And we are drawn into engaging in this flesh and blood tug of war. The scripture says the battle is spiritual. And that God is in control. Be submissive. Secondly, we see that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, I mean, chapter 4, verse 8, we see that Peter was filled with the Spirit. He faced persecution well by being filled with the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? This is a message in and of itself. We won't spend a lot of time here, but it's important to unpack some of it. We understand that when we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, when we are born again, it is the Spirit that comes and brings about conviction and regeneration, makes us a new creature. And then the Scripture says the Spirit of God indwells us. He moves in and stays. He doesn't leave. 
but he stays and abides in us and with us. He guides us, the scripture says, into all truth. He convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He comforts and aids our soul. He glorifies Christ. He declares what is Christ. And he is with us and abides in us forever. Understanding his dwelling in us brings clarity to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Let me just hit some high points from that prayer. Jesus praying to the Father, praying for his, his followers, us. He says, I am glorified in them. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, those of us who have put our trust in Christ, through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Interesting. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. It's an incredible prayer. It's an incredible promise. We are baptized and indwelt by the Spirit once at conversion. But we are daily filled with the Holy Spirit. This is about who's in charge. The Spirit dwells in us, but is he, is he the one who is moving and leading and guiding us through the activities of our day? It requires discipline. It requires intentionality. It means daily reminding ourselves or preaching to ourselves that we belong to him, not to ourselves. I'm not my own. Repenting of our sin daily that distracts and weakens us and makes us more flesh-like that we might be filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and that we might live in a fashion that glorifies Christ. His Spirit lives within me. It's a seal of His redemption and it's evidence of His presence in me that empowers me to walk through the daily of my life. There are actually three, three aspects or angles when we think about this, this idea of being filled with the Spirit that's helpful for us to understand. Bairu'u is the word, and this word carries with it the idea of being, having a pressure, having some kind of energetic pressure to bear. It's used to describe the wind. The wind, for instance, for someone who's sailing, needs wind in the sails in order to power the boat, push the boat, pressure the boat forward. This is one application of this term. Secondly, it conveyed the idea of permeation. How many of you use Alka-Seltzer? I see one hand at least. I'm not surprised by that, Tommy. <laughs> Alka-Seltzer. You know, you take those tablets and you drop them into water, and what happens? They begin to dissolve, don't they? They dissolve, and those little bubbles fill the whole content of the glass, right? All the water that's in there. And so when you take a sip of it, you taste the Alka-Seltzer immediately. 
This is the idea of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us, filling us, permeating us, so that anything that we do, say, any behavior that's demonstrated, any encounter with others, that they walk away going, they recognize that they've been with Jesus. They taste like Jesus. They carry this Jesus, this other world flavor about them. And then there's a third aspect of this terminology that speaks to domination, being dominated by a certain emotion. You know, people are filled with rage. They're filled with anger, filled with fear, or sorrow may fill them. But being, under, being filled with the Spirit means to being, being under domination of the Spirit of God, that He impels us, carries us, directs our path, influences the way we think, influences the way that we see things unfolding around us, that we see this world not through human blood and, blood and flesh kind of lenses, but that we begin to see this world through the eyes of God. Only by being filled with the Spirit is that possible. Some have suggested that being filled with the Spirit means having the joy of God in us. I think this is spot on. In Christ, we know His joy, even the fullness of His joy. Knowing and valuing His joy in Christ is a game changer. When we are filled with joy for God, it changes the way we view life. It changes the way we view circumstances. This joy makes us content in Christ. Nehemiah 8.10 says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Being filled with the Spirit enables us to navigate opposition well. Enables us to be content even with what He ordains for my life, including persecution. Jesus encouraged his disciples in this manner. In Luke chapter 12, verses 11 through 12, he said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Matthew 10, 19 to 20, when, you de when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Being filled with the Spirit enables us to navigate opposition well. And thirdly, I would say that we respond, we see a response to this opposition that suggests that we should seize gospel opportunities at all times. Verses 8 through 13. Preaching the gospel with clarity and boldness provoked the trouble to begin with. Peter and the disciples preaching the gospel, preaching the resurrection of Christ. This is what got everybody all up in arms. And yet, and yet, as Peter was submissive, filled with the Spirit, being bullied, being interrogated. <laughs> he saw it as another God-ordained opportunity. God has gathered a crowd, even though they're ready to lynch me, so I'm going to preach the gospel. Most of us have been negotiating at this point, right? Okay, okay. What do you mean exactly by don't preach anymore? 
Is there any day we can preach any time? Well, we'd be negotiating. We'd be trying to work our way around and have our cake and eat it too. Peter didn't. Peter said, okay, I got a crowd. Let's talk. Let's talk about this Jesus whom you're unhappy about because he resurrected from the dead. He began testifying to the very thing that annoyed them to start with. Now, he's not playing a psychological game. He's not expressing some sort of personal bravado here, trying to make a name for himself. This was the mission. This is the calling. He was bold. This Jesus rejected by you, the builders. Now, a true builder understands what the cornerstone is, right? A true builder understands the importance of the cornerstone. A true builder would recognize a fake cornerstone, a false cornerstone, one that's not going to enable the building to be constructed accurately. And this is the accusation that comes across Peter's message. You guys didn't understand the cornerstone. The cornerstone was here before you, the cornerstone of which God is building up his people, his kingdom. You guys didn't recognize him. You guys rejected him. You crucified him. Now, this confrontation didn't help Peter's case. But he encourages us not to be fearful of man. The gospel is a divine message and commission. We must proclaim it at every opportunity for the glory of God at every cost. Fourthly, this means we must trust God at all costs. Verses 14 through 22. This is the moment of truth. The people with earthly power must decide. Do they have the courage to really silence Peter and John? They want them to be silenced. They want to eliminate this idea about the resurrection. They looked at the lame man, now walking. Hard to argue with that. And all the witnesses could see this as a display of God's power. And they decided they needed to tread lightly. So they warned them, tried to intimidate them, and released them. Don't speak anymore or teach in the name of Jesus. Now, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? 2004, I was in India in a place called Hyderabad, and we were there preaching the gospel in schools. And I was assigned to go to a place, a part of the city that was called Little Pakistan because it was overwhelmingly Muslim. And as I went to one particular school, which was a Catholic school there in this community. Now, being 90 to 95% Muslim in that area meant that all other people were intimidated. That if they did anything that was uh, offensive to the Muslim population in that area, they were going to hear about it. They were going to have a lot of trouble on their hands. So I, got, I showed up at this Catholic church, uh, Catholic school, and uh, the Catholics do the best schools there, so uh, the Muslims would pay money and send their students to the Catholic school. I don't get it. Maybe you do, but... But I had a meeting with the father, the, the, the headmaster of the school, and he told me, he said, now listen, we're glad for you to preach, but don't use Jesus' name. I said, I don't know what to do with that. Preach, but don't use Jesus' name. So I said, okay, I'll try. 
And so I kept telling myself, use God's son, use God's son, say God's son. And so that's what I was doing. But I came to this portion when I said, you know, we were desperate in need of, we need an intermediator. We need a, we need a mediator here. We need someone to come on our half. And God sent his son through the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit conceived his son. And about 10 rows back, there was a young man about 16, 17 years of age, just like this, unrehearsed, said, his name is Jesus. Yes, exactly. God taught me something that day. He taught me that he is sovereign over all things and will accomplish his purposes. He taught me that Jesus is the name indeed above all names and that there is salvation in no other name. He taught me as a gospel advocate, I cannot surrender one inch to the opposition. And he taught me to trust God at all times and all circumstances. He is faithful. It's his gospel. It's his word. And we must trust him no matter the cost. Fifthly, be committed to the body of Christ. When they were released, verse 23 says, what did they do? They packed their bags and left the country, right? No. It says that they immediately went to their friends, to the church, to their fellow believers, and they gathered together and told them what had happened. It's critical, I think, for Christ followers to recognize the value of the church, the community of Christ. Too many treat it as some stale ritual each week, an itch that needs to be scratched periodically, maybe even a superstition. But the church is family. It's an intimate community of Christ followers. We sharpen one another. We encourage one another. We love one another. They turned immediately to their spiritual family and shared what had happened. Now, are we saying that they could not have prayed alone or developed their next steps alone? No, but corporate prayer is critical for strengthening us and advancing the gospel. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Had they strayed or faltered during this time of persecution, the church could have corrected. The church could have encouraged and picked them up and strengthened them. But they didn't stray or falter. So it was an important teaching opportunity for them to share with the church what was going on so that they would be prepared not to waver or falter. They reported God's steadfast love and faithfulness in this storm. And no doubt this served to inspire others to be faithful and amid opposition. And they did what? They prayed. I love this part. When they heard the report, they did, listen, they didn't convene a special meeting or form a committee to study it. I'll let that sink in a little bit. They did not contract a consultant. They did not scour the publishing houses for materials and programs as to how to proceed. Now, I'm not saying people should not use resources. Don't hear that. I'm saying the first thing they did is that they came together and lifted their hearts, their pleas up to God. They called upon God. Notice the prayer. They acknowledged His sovereignty. Now, some people have issues with this concept. I don't understand that. How anyone can say, quibble over the sovereignty of God. 
If you're going to have a God, wouldn't you want him to be sovereign? (laughs) Would you want him to be just like you? Yet that's what we do in modern society, isn't it? We're trying to fashion a God after our own likeness. I don't want a God that's fashioned after me. He's a weak and sinful and broken vessel, if that be true. Scripture is replete with descriptions and implications about God's sovereignty. It simply means that nothing, no thing is beyond God's rule and control. Nothing occurs in this world without God's knowledge. He not only is sovereign Lord, but they acknowledge that he is creator. Now they're using Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2 here, in this prayer which is interesting in and of itself, that they're praying Scripture. He's creator. They're praying to the one who has made everything. He's not only creator, he is sustainer. They are expressing a personal interaction with him. He has spoken in clear, purposed, powerful truth through his word, his revelation to us. He has made himself known to us. Through the mouth of David and others, by the Holy Spirit, they said, They rehearsed this psalm too and used it in their prayer. They recognized that what had occurred, what they had witnessed in recent days, had been prophesied by God all along. These events weren't strange. These events weren't extraordinary in the fact that they were unknown to God. They were a part of God's plan. Therefore, they could look at this and say, well, if we're being persecuted now, it must be part of that same plan. The world rages. The pompous human race craves power and control. They sneer, they mock, and ignore God and his plans. They malign and criticize and rebel against God, and he laughs from on high. He gives their prideful silence no credibility. Why? Because he is working his purposes. He's working his will and completing his plans. He has predestined what will take place. These atrocities against his anointed one were prescribed and planned by God himself. What a powerful prayer and reminder for them and for us. We need not be fearful of man, of earthly kingdoms, and even Satan's works. We don't need to be fearful of these things. Our God is sovereign. Our God, if we are encountering difficulty or persecution, opposition, ridicule, mockery, you name it, God has prescribed this and he says, if you will allow me, be filled with the Spirit of God, I will display my glory in you and through you to your exaltation and to making my name great among all people. No matter what our eyes see transpiring in this world, Christ has already triumphed ultimately over the enemy. The mission has been accomplished. And then notice seventh, the seventh response here. Desire and pursue greater boldness amid opposition. Desire and pursue greater boldness in the face of persecution. Rather than packing your bags and quitting, laying down the gauntlet, 
Pray that God will make you bolder in the face of it. Now, notice what they didn't pray here. They did not, we do not hear them pray, Lord, make this all go away. We don't hear them say, Lord, this is not fair. We don't hear them say, Lord, keep us safe. Not one time do we hear that in their prayer, do we? Now, I have to admit, I don't think there's anything wrong with you praying, Lord, make it go away. I don't think there's anything wrong with you praying, Lord, keep us safe. But the point I want you to say is they are praying basically, Lord, look upon these threats, see these threats, acknowledge these threats, and give us, give your servants boldness to continue in spite of them. Even if you choose not to take them away, even if you choose not to to make this comfortable for us, even if you choose that this is going to get harder, Lord, make us more bold that we might go through it for your glory. Equip and empower us to press on faithfully while you glorify yourself. Strengthen us to stand in Christ's name. The challenge is to desire and pursue greater boldness amid persecution, not to be consumed with a desire for relief or comfort or ease. Again, I don't think it's wrong to pray for those things, but I think it's more important that we pray for boldness to continue, that God might be glorified. Give us the ability and strength to do it for your glory and your purpose. Crab Apple, First Baptist Church, and Grace are on a journey that not many have attempted. Most often we hear about churches that quarrel and fuss and split rather than merge. Merger is not a word that is commonly talked about in churches. Our two churches are committed to the Word of God, we're committed to proclaiming the gospel, and we will be stronger together in this rapidly growing community in which we live. Opposition, even persecution, is certain to come. In fact, I would say it's already begun. While many things in this world disappoint me, I have to say at this juncture in my life, nothing surprises me anymore. Very little. So the question... The question is not, will we encounter adversity and opposition? Will we encounter a difficult road? Yes. Yes, we will. It will be difficult. It will be hard. It will not be easy because the gospel is at the crux of this. The gospel is at the crux and on display here. It will not be easy. Opposition is certain. If you're looking for a coasting ride you're probably in the wrong place. The question is not, will we encounter adversity and opposition? The question is, how will we navigate and respond to it? How will we navigate and respond to it? And our text offers us the pattern. Be submissive, be filled with the Spirit, seize every opportunity as gospel opportunities. Trust God no matter the cost. Be committed to the church Pray without ceasing and desire and pursue greater boldness in the face of opposition. God is going to establish his church in this community. Whether you like it or not, no matter what we may think it should look like or be like, 
God is planting and establishing his church to do gospel work here that will magnify and glorify his name and nothing else. That's what he's after. That's what he's after. He's looking for a people to be that people. A people who will say, Lord, at any cost, no matter what you say, we trust you. You are a sovereign God and we put all of our trust and hope in you. Whatever you want to do with us, we're good with it. Just be glorified. Advance your kingdom. What a privilege to be God's people set apart for his work. The nations, the unregenerate, the naysayers, they will roar and they will rage. But the scripture we looked at this morning in conjunction with the Psalm 2 says, God will not be mocked. God reigns no matter what the world says or does. No matter how the world rages, God reigns. They will feel the conviction of truth and resist and continue to rebel. But the Bible tells us that God laughs at their derision. He warns those who despise and reject his gospel, kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish. Those who belong to Christ are unified and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. May we plead May we plead with God to fill us with his spirit. May we plead with God to make us bold with his gospel, no matter the cost. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. That when we did not deserve it, you came looking for us. That you came and made a way for us. Through Christ Jesus, Lord, what a joy is ours. We pray that we be found faithful as your people in a godless world that has set its desires and hopes on its own, on its own pleasures. That we would be faithful, that we would be people who love you and love one another, and that we would be people who are willing to be used by you however you see fit to advance the gospel and to glorify your name. Thank you, Lord, for that incredible privilege. Give us wisdom and direction as we seek to be bold for you in our world. And we make this prayer today in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.